Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Never forsake us. That our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. That Jesus, you died for all of our sins. And you're coming back and we wait for that day when our faith will be sight. Father, we live by faith right now. We can't see you. We can't see Jesus. We, we know that you're sending Jesus back at some particular day. We do not know, but we long for the day when we will see our Savior face to face. And sometimes, Lord, in this life, it's hard to live by faith. We want to see Help us to remember, Jesus, that you're always there. You hold us in the grip of your hand. No one can snatch us out of your hand. You are strong. You are powerful. You are mighty. You are our eternal Christ, the Lord, Savior, and God. And this morning, we want to see you as revealed in the scriptures. We want to worship you. We want to love you. We want to honor you. So help us to do that in this moments together. As we read and hear and hear the word of the Lord. Father, we want to hear your voice, not mine. So come and speak to us, your children. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning and children from first grade on down, you may leave now to go to kids' own worship. As the children are leaving, the rest of you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. In 2006, an incident occurred at a middle school. It was a middle school in Maryland. My son's a middle schooler and. I'm not sure what goes on at Sterling Middle School, but here's what happened in Maryland. A 12-year-old girl named Amber, she was an avid reader. She would read Harry Potter, she would read other books, and she just loved to devour books. But something changed one day for this middle school girl. She became a Christian. And so she wanted to begin reading her Bible. She wanted to learn all that she could learn about Jesus. And so she began reading her Bible. And it was during the silent reading time at the middle school that she was reading her Bible. And then a vice principal came by and saw her reading her Bible and ordered her to stop because it violated school policy and told her if she continued to read her Bible, she would be expelled because she would face some stiff penalties for reading her Bible in a public school. According to the Fox News report from December of 2009, this is becoming more popular across our nation. A third grader in New Jersey got in trouble for reading her Bible and was sent to the principal's office. A third grader. 
in Massachusetts. An eight-year-old second grader, a special needs child, was asked to draw a picture of what reminded him of Christmas. And so he drew a stick figure picture of Jesus dying on the cross. And his teacher sent him to the principal's office and said he needs to get psychological counseling because what he drew was too bloody and violent. If we don't think persecution and hostility is coming to America, we are living in a dream world. We are living in a culture that's continually becoming more hostile to Christianity. Last week, I introduced you to the word missional. I don't know if I really like the word missional, but for the sake of, of what we're talking about over the next few weeks, we're going to use the word missional. It's, it's an adjective to describe living a life on mission. Last week, we saw that Christ has sent us out on mission, to live on mission, to display God's glory, to declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. And if you remember from last week, I said there's, there's two primary responses that our culture has towards Christianity. One is ambivalence. They just don't care. They see it as irrelevant. They see it as boring. They they don't see it as having any impact on their life. Ambivalence. The other response that I talked about was shock. Hostility. How in the world could you believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? How can you believe the claims of the Bible? Ambivalence on one hand. Shock on the other hand. And being a missional people means that we need to be prepared for these types of responses when we engage our culture. And you've probably experienced both of these responses in your daily lives as you've you've lived out your Christian faith in the workplace or at school. Shock and ambivalence. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to look at two episodes in the life of Paul. This week, we're going to look at an episode where Paul experienced the shock, the hostility, the persecution, Next week, we're going to look at an episode where Paul's in a different context, a different city, and he experiences ambivalence. The people just basically think he's weird. They're not quite sure what he's talking about. And so before we dive into today's passage here in Acts chapter 14, I want to give you some background of what's happening. Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Holy Spirit to be missionaries. They were sent out by the the mother church in Antioch to go westward to Asia Minor and all these places to to plant churches, to be missionaries, to disciple believers. And so they get to a town called Lystra. And there was a man who was crippled from birth. And God was doing some amazing things through Paul's ministry. And so Paul healed this man. And guess what happened? The town was in an uproar. You see, this was a town that was steeped in pagan ideology, Greek mythology. They thought that Barnabas was Zeus, and they thought Paul was Hermes. And so they came out and started bowing down to Paul and Barnabas, wanting to worship them as Greek gods. As a matter of fact, the the priest from the temple of Zeus came out and and wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, and, and everybody was bowing down to worship these supposed Greek gods that had came from heaven. And if you know anything about Paul, he's disturbed by this. Paul doesn't like this, and he he looks at these people and says, no, don't don't worship me, worship the living God, worship Jesus, repent of your sins, and trust in Christ. And so the the, the crowd was getting caught up in the frenzy of the moment. They were were elevating Paul and Barnabas as these superstars, as these miracle workers, as these bigger-than-life heroes. It's very similar to our culture. A culture where people are fickle, people are wanting to follow fads, the latest and greatest or hot thing that's going on. People want superstars, don't they? 
They want bigger-than-life personalities. They want to worship people that, that have power. And so people want a lot of things, don't they? People want miracles. People want spirituality. People want their best life now. People want, want, want. The only problem is, is that people don't want Jesus. They want the spiritual experience without repenting of sin, without trusting in Christ, without dying to self, without taking up their cross, without submitting to the Lordship of Christ. They want all these great things, but they don't want Christ. And that's the culture that Paul and Barnabas were faced with. This culture in Lystra where the mob was coming together and they were, they were wanting to elevate Paul and Barnabas and worship them as Greek gods. And Paul says, no, the focus is always on the gospel, not upon me, not upon my ministry. The focus is upon Jesus, his gospel. And so the popularity spreads about these two men, Paul and Barnabas. So much so that 60 miles away in a town called Antioch and Iconium, there were some Jewish leaders that got really upset So they decided to make this 60-mile trek to Lystra to put an end to it once and for all. We can't have Paul and Barnabas doing these things, so we're going to put an end to it. And that's where we pick up the story here in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. So in your Bibles, Acts 14, verse 19, to the end of the chapter, this is the very tail end of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. So let's read what happens. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. First thing we see here is the nature, the the, the fickle nature of the crowd. I mean, just moments ago, the crowd was bowing down and worshiping Paul and Barnabas as these Greek gods. And then all of a sudden, these Jewish leaders come and they basically persuade the crowd against Paul and Barnabas. The crowd is fickle. The crowd is not discerning. The crowd has no idea of how to be stable, how to, how to have um, a stability. They're, they're blown like the winds and the waves. And, and so these Jewish leaders come and they persuaded the crowds. That word persuaded means they corrupted them. They sowed seeds of lies. They, they manipulated. They got, what they really did was they incited a mob, a mob frenzy here to have some hatred against Paul and his message. I mean, this is, this is outright hatred of the gospel, so much so that they stone him. I mean, what did Jesus tell us about how people are going to respond to the gospel? In John 15, 18 through 19, Jesus said this, how the words of our Savior... If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Thank you, Jesus. Don't we want to hear that? The world hates us. Second, uh, for Second Timothy 3.12. 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might be persecuted, may be persecuted. What does it say? Will be persecuted. And so here's the crowd. In a mob frenzy, they begin picking up stones and pelting Paul to death. So much so that they think he's dead, they drag him outside the city, not even giving him a proper burial, and they think that he's dead. They leave him for dead. And Paul's just laying there. Paul makes mention. It's, it's amazing here because whether Paul is dead, really dead, or whether he's just almost dead, it doesn't matter. It's still a miracle both ways because he gets up. God performs a miracle. It wasn't God's time for Paul to be off the scene yet. And Paul makes mention of this episode. You know, Paul was a radical guy for the gospel, and he received a lot of persecution. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 25 through 26, Paul tells us all the things that happened to him. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. This is what he's talking about right here. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Paul's a dangerous guy. Galatians 6, 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He's stoned, pelted with stones, left for dead out in the city. And what does the text say here? Look at verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. I find this amazing. (laughs) Paul doesn't go hide out. He doesn't go whine and cry about it. He gets up and goes back into the city where they were going to stone him. I mean, Paul's a crazy man. Why would you walk right back into the place where they just left you for dead? He's fearless. He's fearless in preaching the gospel. And so what Paul does here is that he's going to retrace his steps. You see, this is his first missionary journey. And on the way, he's been planning churches and discipling people in all these different cities. And he's going to go back and revisit those cities where he's he's been um, planning churches on his way back to Antioch. And so what we see Paul doing is retracing his steps. And we see that Paul is living on mission. I mean, right from this text, you can see Paul being missional. You can see him living the three G's that we talk about a lot. We see him displaying God's glory, declaring God's gospel, and discipling for God's great commission. You see that. Paul realized that Christ had sent him on a mission, and that he too was to go out and to, to proclaim the gospel and be a missional, a missional Christian. So let's, let's just look and see what this looks like. What, what does being a missional Christian look like? It, it may be a new concept for you to think about being missional. What does it mean to live on mission for Jesus Christ in your everyday lives? For the sake of clarity this morning, I just want to look at Paul, and I want to look at how the three G's that we talk about, part of our mission statement of Emmanuel, play out in this text. You see God's glory. You see God's gospel. You see God's great commission. So let's just kind of go in order of the text, and let's see these things unfolding. So first of all, we see Paul declaring God's gospel. Notice what it says there in verse 21. When he had preached the, right there, the gospel. When he had preached the gospel. He preached the gospel. The good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about preaching... You probably have some weird thoughts in your mind, right? A crazy guy standing up on a stage, ranting and raving at you every Sunday. Yes, I am a preacher. 
Yes, I preach to you from this pulpit. I expound and declare God's word, but don't let anybody ever tell you that I'm the only preacher in this church. I'm just the main preacher on Sunday morning. All of you are called to be preachers of the gospel. This word here, preach the gospel, is where we get our word evangelism. To go out and declare the good news. It was often taken from this whole idea of of a person that would be an announcer. Back in those days, they would have um, announcers, if you will, that would come in and and say, for example, two countries were at war. And and one one of the nations won the war. They would send a person to go back into the city and announce victory. He would go through the streets and declare, victory, we've won the war, victory, we've won the war. Now, he doesn't make up the news. He doesn't make up the war. He just comes and reports on the victory that has happened. And that's that word evangelism, that word declare the gospel, just means that we announce a victory of what has happened. We don't make up the message. We just announce the message, the victory of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so being a missional person simply means that you tell the gospel. Now, get rid of the baggage of the word preacher, okay? Because all of you, when you mainly think of preacher, you think of me. So let's change the terminology just for today, okay? Change it with the word tell, share, declare, something that you utter out of your mouth. You're just called to be an announcer, a teller, a sharer of the gospel. It has to be a verbal message that comes out of your mouth to another person. Now, there's a saying that I really don't like, and I used to use it a lot when I was more immature and younger in my Christian walk, and you've, you've probably heard this message before, this, this saying, and I, I really don't like it. I understand the, the meaning behind it. I understand the spirit behind it. If you have a little plaque with this or if you have a bumper sticker, I'm sorry if I'm offending you. I'm just going to tell you I don't like this statement. Okay, are you ready? It comes from St. Francis of Assisi. It goes like this. Preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Now, I know what he's saying there, but it's like saying, travel to India, if necessary, use a plane. Play basketball always, if necessary, use a ball. Go shopping for Christmas presents, if necessary, take some money. You cannot share the gospel unless you use words. Now, I understand what he's saying there. Don't get me wrong. He, he's saying that we need to have a lifestyle that backs up our, our talk, the walk that matches the talk. We need to have winsome lifestyles that are attractive to people. But I would submit to you, there is no sharing of the gospel unless there's something that comes out of your mouth to declare that. You've got to share. You've got to tell. You've got to tell the story. Because what the problem is with that St. Francis of Assisi thing is it, it puts the attention back upon us. And when people see us, what are they going to see? Sinners. Do we in ourselves have the power to save anybody? No. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm down on testimonies. I'm just saying that there comes a point where Paul, and if you look in the scriptures, very rarely will you ever see anyone in the scriptures just becoming a Christian because somebody observed their life. It almost always meant that somebody declared a message, told the gospel, shared the gospel, and then they became a Christian. A few months ago, when I spent a few days with Artaxerdia, our, fr- our friend that's come and preached here, um, he's planning a new church in Portland. And he was telling me that Portland, he used to live in San Francisco. He was saying that in Portland, it's probably the most postmodern, liberal, new age city he's ever lived in. And everybody's got a story. And everybody's got all these weird belief systems. And so what he's saying is, and we talked about this, is that sometimes when you share your testimony, I'm not down on testimonies. Now don't hear me. Don't, don't go out here saying, Sean, doesn't, Sean says you shouldn't share your testimony. I'm not down on testimonies. But here's what's happening in our day and age, okay? Think about it for a moment. Everybody's got a testimony. 
You can get someone that loves Oprah to give testimony of how Oprah's changed her life. You can give somebody that, that maybe is into Hinduism or into Buddhism or into Taoism or into any other world religion, and they can give a testimony of how that's changed their life. And their life may be better than yours by worldly standards. They may be more happy. They may be more at peace. They may be richer. And so when you stack all these testimonies up in the buffet, the cafeteria of all the world belief systems, yours is just another testimony among many. And so people will look at you as a Buddhist or a Hindu and say, that's great. I love your testimony. I'm great, great that Christ has done something for you. Let me tell you how Buddha's done something for me. And so it's just a, it's just a competition between the testimonies. And so in a world that doesn't value truth, what people go off is feelings. It feels good for me. I'm going to do it. And so the only thing that can actually save someone is the gospel. And let me say this very clearly. Your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony is what God has done for you, but your testimony is not the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all the implications that flow from that and the call for a person to repent and believe in Jesus, not just to accept your life story. Now, again, I'm not down on testimony. Should you share your testimony? Yes. Do you all have a testimony? Yes. Share your testimony. Share what God's doing in your life. Give testimony of what God's doing, but just remember at the back of your head, that's not going to save people. You have to eventually get to the point where you tell them about Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what Paul does. It says here that he preached the gospel. Secondly, we see in verse 21, not only did Paul declare the gospel, but he discipled for God's great commission. Notice what it says right there. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. I mean, you got it right there. He made many disciples. Where else do we see that verse? Go and make disciples. It's in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. What does Jesus tell us? Go therefore and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That was Jesus' command, make disciples. What does Paul do? He makes disciples. It's the same Greek word there. Different tense, but the same Greek word. He was making disciples. Now, what does that look like? Well, if you take the Great Commission literally, it meant Paul was probably baptizing those that became Christians, and he was teaching them to observe all that God had commanded. And so I think it's very helpful when we look in Acts, because you see this fleshed out. You see this whole issue of making disciples fleshed out in the book of Acts. And so what we see is we see how Paul does this discipling ministry. If we are called as a church to make disciples... If you are called to make disciples, and by the way, that's the primary thing we're called to do. What's the one thing that we're not going to do when we get to heaven? Are we going to make disciples anymore? No. We're going to be saved. We're, we're going to be fully in heaven, and we're not going to have to worry about witnessing or sharing or, or making disciples, but that's what we're called to do right now. And so let's look at four things that we, three, four, four things that Paul does here in his discipling ministry. Okay, what does Paul do? When it says he's making disciples, we get a little peek here in the the book of Acts of what that looked like for Paul and by implication what it would look like for this church. Okay, first of all, Paul strengthened the souls of the disciples. Notice what it says there in verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Do we need to share the gospel? Yes. Do we want to see converts? Yes. Do we want to see people come to faith in Christ? Yes. That's just the beginning of the journey. What happens next? We've got to strengthen 
the souls of the disciples. And let's just ask a simple question. Why do you think new Christians need strength? Why do you need strength? Why do we all need to be strengthened? Because we face temptations every day, especially new Christians. I mean, I've heard testimony from a lot of you that have become new Christians, and you've come into my office and you shared with me, Sean, when I was a non-believer, it was so much easier. Now that I become a Christian, it is hard. I'm being tempted. I'm having issues in my life I'm having to deal with. I'm repenting of sins. I've got my former friends. I'm being torn. I'm experiencing spiritual warfare. I've never experienced this before. Right. Before you were lost. You didn't care about those things. But now that you are saved, now that you're born again, now that Christ has come into your life, you have new affections, new desires, new, new, new appetites, new habits. And the devil and the world and your flesh are going to fight against you with all of its force to make you to want to go back to that old way of life. And so as new believers and even as, as, as me as pastor, we need to be strengthened. So the question is, how are you strengthening one another? How are you strengthening the souls of the disciples? That's part of discipling, strengthening one another, strengthening the souls. Okay, look at the second one, verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Encouraging, not only do we need strength, but we need encouragement. That word encouragement means to come alongside someone, to walk alongside someone, to walk the journey with someone, to encourage them, to motivate them, to motivate them and encourage them to what? To not give up, to remain in the faith. We need encouragement. What does Hebrews say? The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we need to be about strengthening one another, encouraging one another. That's what discipling is. Discipling is not some weird clash that you go through for 13 weeks and you get your fill-in-the-blank book and at the end you're a disciple. I've made it. I finished experiencing God. I finished the Beth Moore study. I finished this. Now I'm a disciple. It's a lifelong process where all of us are working together to strengthen one another, to encourage one another. And then thirdly, what does Paul do? He's teaching. Like teaching? I don't see that in there. I don't see the word teaching. Well, let me show you what Paul's teaching. Verse 22. Strengthening the souls of disciples, one. Encouraging them to continue the faith, two. Number three, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul's teaching them that this thing's going to be hard. I mean, what had just happened to Paul? He got stoned and left for dead. And Paul's coming to them saying, new believers, this life of Christianity, you're going to have tribulations. You're going to have hardships. Like the video we saw with Horatio Spofford, it may not be that extreme, but you're going to have some hardships. This is not the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel where Paul says everything's going to be a bed of roses. You're going to have everything that your heart desires. You're not going to have any problems. All your problems are going to go when you become a Christian. He's saying, no, when you become a Christian, things may even get a bit tougher. That's why you need strengthening. That's why you need encouragement. Through many tribulations. He talks about this in the Thessalonian church. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 3-4, Paul's talking to this church that was struggling. He says, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Great things going on in the life of the church. They're growing. Their their faith is growing. They're loving one another. And then verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. So Paul says, New Christians, disciple-making, You need strength. I'm going to strengthen you. 
We need encouragement. We need to encourage each other. But we also need to realize that we're going to go through some hard times together. We're going to go through suffering. We're going to go through tribulations. And then fourthly, the fourth thing we see Paul do here, he raises up new leadership. Notice what it says there in verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church. This is the first time in the New Testament we see the appointment of elders. Paul went back to these churches that were struggling, that he started, and said, the job's not complete until there's spiritual leadership in place. So he appoints elders. And so when you think about being a missional church, the the core leadership of the church, the elders, the deacons, the, the Sunday school teachers, all those in leadership need to be those that catch the vision of being missional that we see ourselves as being on mission. And we need to raise up new leaders who will be missional. One of my fears is that in, in churches, we raise up leaders that are consumeristic. It's all about me. It's all about my agenda. We're raising up a, a whole generation of consumeristic, me-centered leaders as opposed to leaders that are willing to, ra- to be raised up and say, you know what? It's about the kingdom of God. It's about being missional. It's about, it's about spreading the gospel. I want to show you something that's overarching in the life of Paul. And it should be overarching in the life of this church. And it's prayer and fasting. Notice what it says in verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Prayer is the fuel for everything that's done in the church. A church will not be successful without prayer. Without deep prayer and fasting, without going before the Lord. I don't know if you guys realize this, but this past weekend, um, our elders spent time in a retreat albeit it was at the Holiday Inn in Sydney, but hey, that's a retreat. It's away from, from Sterling. And a lot of that time in that retreat setting was spent on our knees praying. Praying for the needs of this church, praying for people in this church, praying for hurting people, praying for vision. We were bathing the whole weekend in prayer. And so as your leaders, we want to model what it means to pray. And so prayer is very important to the life of the church. So what do you see here according to our mission statement as a manual? We exist to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, disciple for God's great commission. We've seen two of the three, right? What did Paul do? He declared God's gospel. Secondly, what did he do? He discipled for God's great commission. Now, you may ask, well, where's God's glory in this? I don't see the words there, Sean, displaying God's glory. Well, obviously, it's a mission statement. It's not, you're not going to find it in the Bible because it's our mission statement, but you see it there. Where do you see God's glory in this text? Look at verse 26 for a moment. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. What happened? They finished the work. They fulfilled the task that God had given them. In other words, they were obedient. They were obedient to what God has called them. And let me just say this, obedience always brings glory to God. When you're obeying God and doing the task that he's given you to do, and you fulfill that task, it brings him great glory because you are being obedient to what God has called you to do. And see, their mission here was to, was to bring things to a close. They're at the tail end of their missionary journey, and they go back to the home church. They go back to the home church, and they get the whole church together, and they're going to give reports. We want to tell you all the great things that have happened in all these cities that we've gone to. It would kind of be like, you know, when we went to Nicaragua, we'd come back and tell you all the stories. When we go to India in a few months, we'd come back and, and we'd tell you all the stories. When, when the youth go on mission trip, they come back and tell you all the stories. This is what Paul's doing here. But notice what I want you to notice here is in verse 27. Notice how Paul, or Luke, the writer here of Acts, phrases what they did. Verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. 
how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They didn't come back and say, look at all the things that we've done. Look what we did. Look at what we accomplished. Look at what we did. No, it says, look what God had done. It's always about God's agenda, God's mission, God's glory, God's prerogative. Everything was about God's will. And what they were doing was they were giving glory to God, saying, we've gone on this missionary journey and we're giving praise to our Heavenly Father, to God Almighty for what He's done. And He's opened many doors. Notice what it says. He he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This was one of Paul's favorite terms. God has opened a door. God has opened a door. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. For a wide door for effective minister or effective work has been opened to me. Then there are many adversaries. Yeah, right. He got stoned and left for dead. 2 Corinthians 2.12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord. There was an open door, a wide door. And then Colossians 4.3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. I mean, that's what you and I need to be praying for that God would open a door. Here's a catch-22 in the life of a Christian. How many of you have ever prayed for an open door? God, just open doors. Just open doors, God. God, I want you to open a door. How many of you prayed that? Don't raise your hand. You're raising your hand. Uh, And how many times has God opened the door and you not walked through it? That's flat out disobedience. Here's the problem with Christians. We're so wanting God to open a door that when he opens it, we don't have the eyes to see that it's right there in front of us. And, and we need to be praying, God, open a door for me to witness to that person. Well, God may have already opened the door because you're sitting next to them at your cubicle. God, open a door for me to say something to them. The door's wide open. You just need to walk through it. So many times I think we use an excuse for open a door for us to do nothing. We're waiting for God to open that door and God's like, door's wide open. You got to go through it. So we need to pray for those open doors. And when God opens the doors, go through it. One last thing I want you to see here about this whole issue of being a missional church. This whole issue of of disciple making, of sharing the gospel, of being sent on mission. It takes time and energy. Notice what Paul says, the very last statement there. Verse 28. And they remain no little time with the disciples. In other words, they stayed there a long time. The the Greek tense there means it was repetitious. They met. It wasn't just like Paul flew in and flew out. He stayed with them a long time. He taught, he discipled, he ministered. And you may be in that situation where where you're you're discipling someone or you're sharing the the faith with someone and it just doesn't seem like there's results coming and and you've been sharing Christ with someone for years and nothing happens. And and the encouragement we have is, is stay with it. Stay with it. One of the things I want you to see is that being a missional person and being a missional church is not a program. I'm not talking about a program. We've had enough programs, especially in Southern Baptist life, programmed out. I'm not talking about a program. Being missional is a way of life. It's an ethos. It's a culture that God creates in a church. And you're probably thinking at the end of this message, Sean's asking me to tack something else onto my already busy life. This whole missional business. I don't want to go share the gospel I don't want to go make disciples. I want my life to be about me. Let me give you some good news. I'm not asking you to tack anything onto your already busy life. I'm not asking you to come to another class. I'm not asking you to come to another fill-in-the-blank notebook session where you go through the 13 weeks and, hey, I made it. 
I'm not asking you to, to do anything that you're not already doing, but all I want you to do is, is I want you to see your life as already being a platform to be missional. There are so many doors already open to you. God has placed you in so many contexts. God has placed you in, in all these places, and you just need to live with the intentionality that where God has planted me and the natural ebb and flow of my life, I'm going to be missional. I'm not going to come to another program to learn how to be missional. I'm just going to be missional. It's not a program. One of the websites that I go to frequently is called the Gospel Community Mission Collective. Um, it's, it's a website that really helps you to think about what it means to live gospelly, but also reach your culture. And it's got some solid theology. And on this website, they have seven ways to be missional. Seven easy ways to be missional, Okay. Are you ready for these seven things? This is where it gets rubber meets the road. Okay, practical. I'm not asking you to come to another class. I'm not asking you to come to another Bible study. I'm not asking you to sign up for a 13-week class. These things I'm asking you to do are part of the natural ebb and flow of your already busy lives. So here are the seven suggestions of how to be missional, okay? Number one, eat with non-Christians. How many meals a day do you eat? Well, sometimes, hopefully three meals a day. Make one of those meals with a non-Christian. And don't just go to lunch to go to lunch, but be intentional to say, I'm going to eat with a non-Christian for the purpose of building a relationship, for the purpose of having conversations, for the purpose of, uh, of, of actually engaging them with the gospel. I'm just going to eat with a non-Christian. Invite your neighbor over for dinner. Now, it doesn't have to be where you go all out and make this fancy dinner. Order pizza. Domino's, Pizza Hut, Jimmy's Pizza, it's good enough for me. Just invite them over for pizza. Okay, number two, be regular. Be regular at where you go. Instead of hopping around to different coffee shops, different gas stations, different places, be a regular. Go to the same place, the same person over time. Become a regular so that you can build relationships with that person over time to where you can begin to open doors of communication. Be a regular. I mean, you're already doing stuff like that. Just be a regular. Number three, hobby with non-Christians. Pick a hobby like City League Sports. Any type of leisure, dance lessons, music lessons, oboe lessons, any type of things. Uh, here's the thing that happens with hobbies, okay? Most of the time, we pick hobbies that are going to interest us because we're wanting to fulfill something in our lives, right? I pick hobbies because they interest me. Think a little bit sacrificially and say, you know what? I'm going to pick a hobby not for the purpose of bettering my life. I'm going to pick a hobby for the purpose of being missional. I'm going to go do something I've never done before. It sounds cool, but I'm going to do it to meet people I can be missional with. Pick a hobby. It's already something you're probably going to do anyway, and it's something you're going to enjoy, but be missional and intentional in that hobby. Number four, pray for and talk to your coworkers. Pray for your coworkers. It doesn't take that big of a risk to pray for them, to talk with them. How many of you are praying for your lost coworkers by name on a daily basis? Be on mission where God's placed you. You know, we're going to India in a few months, and we're going way, way far away, right? To the utter ends of the earth. But you know what? God has called you to be a missionary right where you are. Number five, volunteer for nonprofits. Spend once a month doing something to improve our community. A lot of times we as Christians live in a Christian subculture where it's all about us. Go volunteer for a nonprofit. 
Go volunteer for a civic organization here in Sterling that that number one, betters our community, but number two, you can live intentionally there with non-Christians as a way to be missional, to serve alongside them. A lot of times people look at Christians and think they take, they take, they take. They don't pay taxes. They're a parasite to this community because they take all the good volunteers from the community, put them in the church, they're non-tax status, and so they're taking away revenue from the community. Instead of having all that stuff happen, go just be a a volunteer and, and work along side let let non-christians say hey christians are concerned about our community number six participate in community events go to fundraisers go to festivals go to cleanups go to events um, you may ask why didn't we do sugar beet days this year i'll tell you why we didn't do sugar beet days this year they made a new rule i think because of us the rule was you have to sell something for years we had a booth at sugar beet days where we gave away free free water one year i think we gave away like a thousand bottles of water and I think the, the vendors and others were a little upset that the business was being taken away from them. And so we elected this year to say, you know what, we're not going to cause problems. We're not going to cause ripples. We want to be seen as, as positive, so we're just not going to participate in sugar beet days. What are some other creative ways that we can infiltrate a community events with the gospel? And then number seven, serve your neighbors. Weed, shovel, mow, fix a car. If you live in an apartment, go to the apartment manager and ask, what are some needs around here? Just serve your neighbors. Now, these aren't any more classes I'm asking you to attend. It's not another Wednesday night program. It's not a 13-week course. These are things that you're already doing in your lives. But here's the the difference. You have different lenses on this time. Your lenses are, instead of doing this for my little life, we, we get myopic and we go through our lives and we do our little routine. Instead of doing our own little routine, we have new lenses on that say, you know what, I'm gonna do the things I'm already doing, but I'm gonna do them with a missional intentionality. I'm gonna be on mission. And you see, here's the issue. We live in a hostile culture, right? A culture of shock. People are shocked at what Christians believe. I will say this. One of the ways that we can lower the shock level, now we're not going to be able to lower all the shock level because God ordains how much persecution will happen, but I think one of the ways that you maybe lower the shock level is to actually just be a humble servant and let non-believers see that you're not some weird, fanatical weirdo, that you care about the community. You care about them. You're humble. You love them. That's going to go a lot of ways to lower that shock. I'm the, oftentimes go to Denver for these meetings with our state convention and um, I get to hear all these great reports of all these churches around our state convention that are doing all these things uh, missionally. And I wanted to share a few things of uh, some, what some other churches are doing. And, and, and one of them is, is even something that our own director of missions and our church will be involved in very shortly. You remember last week when I prayed about, we talked about the Hispanic population? Okay, I, I did the demographic and looked at like, what was it, 14, 15% of, of Logan County is Hispanic. We talked about ESL. Okay, I talked to Kent McDowell this week, and he said, hey, he called me up and said, um, myself and a man named Oscar De La Cruz, who's an ethnic church planning strategist, we're coming to Sterling at the 1st of February, and we're going to go prayer walking and scouting around the area to see how we can plan a Hispanic church in Sterling. Now, is that a God thing or what? So there may be a possibility in the near future that we as a church begin to plant or help plant a Hispanic-speaking church here in Logan County. I found out First Baptist Church of Aurora used to be a dying church. Now they have eight people groups that meet in their church. Eight different people groups, eight different language groups that meet in their church all throughout the week. That would be amazing just to have, you know, one church, one church building, but eight different churches meeting in there all speaking different languages. In Grand Junction on the Western Slope, they have these sportsman banquets where they invite these, these big game hunters in and have these big sportsman banquets and, and they, they, they get all these burly hunting men together. 
And a guy comes in and presents the gospel, and they've seen, a, like a lot of people, get saved these these sportsman banquets. I've got a friend in, 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 in Louisville, the Boulder area. His name's Scott Kelly. He's a pastor. Um, the, the skating rink is right across from their church. They've got a partnership with the skating rink where they can go over there, and they can... Um, do ministry. They can talk about evangelism. They serve at the skating rink. They see that strategically located across the skating rink, they didn't just see it as a place, well, let's go over there and skate. They said, that's a place for strategic ministry. Let's go partner with the skating rink. And so the Boulder County such recreation league or whatever is allowing them to go do ministry at the skating rink. New Life Community Church in Greeley. Has anybody ever heard of geocaching? Anybody? There's one back there. I'd never heard of geocaching. Some of you Explain it to me. I don't know. But they're doing geocaching. I think it's like something with GPS satellite systems where people go and do like these. Is that what I'm talking Like these little navigation trips where people get together and they take their GPS and they go out and they, and they do fun stuff like with GPS. Sounds kind of weird to me, but hey, whatever floats your boat. But they're doing um, these geocaching ministries where they're trying to, to reach people through the geocaching community. See, all these churches are thinking of creative ways to be missional. And I strongly believe that God has a plan for Emmanuel Baptist Church to be missional. A plan for us to think about what are are the needs of our community? What are the needs of our area? How can we be strategically placed to be missional? And it doesn't, not a program, okay? Hear me. I don't want to start another program. Anybody here up for another program? Please say no. Please say amen. No more programs. Thanks, Sneha. No more programs. (laughs) Not that programs are bad. We're talking culture. We're talking ethos. We're talking your everyday life. If every single one of us is living missionally, guess what? We won't have to program it. It'll just happen because you're being obedient to what God's called you to do. So Paul faced a hostile culture. Next week, he faced an ambivalent culture. We're going to face both, people that are shocked, people that just don't care. How do we engage our culture and be missional for the glory of Christ? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. I know we've gone a little long, but sometimes you get wound up. And I want you to begin thinking right now of where has God placed you in your particular area that you can begin to start thinking about being missional? How can I see myself as being sent out on a mission? How can I go through the natural ebb and flow of my life and, and be a missional Christian? What am I already doing right now that I can be thinking through new lenses to be intentional of being missional? I want you to spend a few moments and ask the Lord to show you how to do that. And maybe a door is wide open and you just need to walk through it. Or maybe there's a non-Christian friend or family member that you haven't actually verbally declared the gospel to. You're kind of being St. Francis and hoping they'll see, your, see the gospel through your life, and that's good, but maybe you haven't actually opened your mouth to share the gospel with them. Just spend some time before the Lord this morning asking Him to, to search your heart and, and give you some answers of, as far as how you would go forward and be a missional person.